Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Way Inside. This is episode number nine. I'm John Cullen. Thank you for being here with me on Sportsnet's Inside Curling Feed. We've got a great interview for you, sitting down with Briar Silver medalist Matt Dunstone. I don't usually get super serious on this show. You know, it's not a newsy type show that we do here. I did want to say right now we're in the midst of a lot of curling team changes and people have asked me about this. Oh, John, you know, are you surprised to see so many of these teams changing? And I think a lot of the top end teams saw how good Guju, Botcher, and Dunstone are. And I think it's scary for them. I was talking with another prominent men's skip. He felt like there is a clear delineation between those top three teams and the rest of the field. And it hasn't been that way over the last few quads. You know, we've had our teams at the top. Obviously, Guju has been so good for the last, you know, decade. But there has been that sense that there's sort of six or seven teams that are maybe all in that mix. And I think a lot of the teams have identified that there is a very clear top three right now. And I think that that's good for Canada. You know, we're talking about how we can catch up to the world. I think it's good that we have maybe these sort of three teams that are sitting on a top tier that, you know, maybe are ready to push this country even harder. And I think they are. Like I said, this other skip was saying, I I feel like I've got to personally step my game up. And I think that's what's led to a lot of these team changes is these teams sort of saw, okay, we're in year one of this potential quadrennial and we're behind and we got to catch up and we got to do something to potentially get ourselves in that top mix of three. And so I think that's why we saw the team Kui change bringing on Jacques Gauthier. I think that's why we're seeing Colton Flash taking a drop down to third, bringing in Mike McEwen at skip. And I do also think that's why some of the teams stayed together, right? Like Team Horgan, the, the Horgan brothers staying together with Darren Molding. I think they realized and felt like we're young. We got a lot of room to grow and we're close. That's where all of these teams are thinking. They're thinking, you know what? We did set this lineup thinking that we would have a great chance this quad. And I think they've seen what's happening on the ice and they knew they had to make a change. And so I think that's why we're seeing all of this off-season movement that we don't normally see in the first year of a quad. And I think it's going to be great. I think when teams set the bar and other teams have to chase that bar, that's what's always been great about Canadian curling. And I think it's only going to be good for our sport in the future. And speaking of people who are good for this sport, Matt Dunstone, one of my favorite guys to talk to. We talk about it in the podcast, but I met him for the first time at the 2013 Canadian Juniors in Fort McMurray, Alberta. I flew up there to give a comedy performance slash keynote type thing. This whole interview was a blessing. Matt is one of my favorite guys to talk to. I think he's great for the sport and is only going to continue to get greater. We have a great chat here. We run over a bunch of stuff from his junior career all the way to now. He's got that SGI Canada Best of the West tournament that he runs coming up. There's just a lot of great stuff to talk about. I won't belabor the point anymore. Here's Matt Dunstan. All right, I am here with Matt Dunstone. And Matt, we start every show with a top four. We start the show with a lightning round. So you're just going to give me a quick answer to these questions. First thing that pops into your mind. You ready? 
Let's dance. All right, here we go. Which curler have you never played with before that you would want to? Jeff Stoughton. If all the rocks are exactly the same, so you know that both sets are great, you love both sets, which color are you taking? Yellow. What's something that's considered a basic thing in curling that you struggled to learn? Sweeping. <laughs> How would your bitterest rival describe you? <laughs> annoying. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you so annoying? I laugh a lot, especially in like moments that are supposed to be tense and like high pressure. I find a way to laugh and kind of make a joke of it. Oh, really? Like, has someone actually said this to you? Like, they've said that that's annoying or disrespectful or something? No, it's a feeling I have. <laughs> that, like, they're looking over at you while you're just, like, laughing in this moment? Yeah, I think so. It's a moment that's supposed to be tense and scary and high pressure and just having fun with it, I think, could be a little annoying. You're an emotional guy, you know? So I think it's fine. I think people are getting to know you. They're, like, on the ride now. I feel like maybe that'll be less annoying in the future, maybe. Maddie Dunstone roller coaster. It's a very emotional ride. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Do you cry at movies? <laughs> no, I don't watch many movies actually. Do you get affected by other stuff or is it just curling that gets you going? Just curling for the most part. I cried at one movie I can think of off the top of my head Marley and Me. I don't know why I remember that moment, but I watched that movie <laughs> and I was tearing up after that. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a, it's a, like a dog thing, right? Yeah, the dog passes away near the end. It's been so long since I, I didn't go back after I cried. I was like, I do this. <laughs> like, I don't need another one of those. That's why you stopped watching movies. Yeah, I cry enough as it is. I got, I got to do things that make me smile. <laughs> um, okay, let's get into your curling career. Let's go back to sort of the start when people started to know you. 2013, I think. That's when I got to know you, actually. I... Uh, performed comedy at your first Canadian Juniors experience, which was uh, a good time. Good time for you. You won. But I wanted to go back to the Manitoba final because uh, that bad boy went to 12 ends. Walk me through that. How'd that happen? Yeah, the, the first and only 12 end game I've ever played. I just remember kind of the 10th, 11th and 12th. Um, I don't really remember much of the game. There is a clip of it, but I haven't watched it. The whole game's actually on YouTube. Yeah, the whole, the whole seven hour clip. It's like a Netflix <laughs> limited series, eh? Like ends five, six, seven coming to you on June 10th. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I know in the 10th, I think we were two up coming home, gave up a cheap deuce, just kind of played it a little safe. Didn't want to give up the three ball. 11th then was <laughs> insane. They were back four, had a center guard on it. Shannon's brother, Daniel Burchard, was who we were playing in the final. And he was trying to throw a high guard on it. And if he made the high guard, then we had like a half rock angle run for the win, but he actually froze his own guard, like right on the nose. And so they were back button. We were kind of like back four, just to the left of it. Tried to like basically nose run it in, pick the one off the back button and then over top of the back four red. But I hit it just a little high and it dragged it and it actually hit like a quarter rock of the yellow. And then it hit our red and spilled out abs like all, all the stones. And the shooter went right through the middle. Yeah. Double run, yeah. double for the blank in 11. <laughs> and then drew the cannon in 12 to win. Like I, I wanted to ask because how did you sort of mentally reset for 12 ends? I mean, I never played a 12 end game in my life. You know, were you happy, just happy to get out of 11? I mean, you looked kind of pained. Like you were upset that you missed the shot in 11. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't. I mean, it was a dream that we actually had a shot, you know, as easy as that. Cause it was perfectly lined up. Like it was dead nose hits half rock over the top. So I was like relieved that we actually had a shot and then disappointed because 
the shot was quite easy <laughs> and, and we missed it. So it was, it was a bit of both, but I mean, relief that everything spilled because quite fortunate with the way we hit it, that the, the yellow I ran in did actually spill. Yeah. It didn't stick right there. Yeah, totally. Now, so you go on, you win the Canadian junior final in 2013 and then it takes you three years to get back there and you win it again in 2016. But, you know, I know, especially as a junior, it can be tough, like, to keep going, you know, you think, oh, we won in 2013. I'm going to just win this every year for fun, you know, and then you ran into Braden Calvert, who wins a couple times in a row and also wins Canada a couple times in a row. What was sort of going through your mind? What was going on with your team in those couple years to kind of, you know, keep yourself hungry? And because you kept with the same team and all that, you know, what was kind of keeping you going and not sort of thinking like, geez, how are we not winning these? Yeah. So I mean, 2014, we had the same team as my junior team. We had a good year. Braden played phenomenal in the final and took the screws to us there. Um, and then two of the guys on my team, one aged out, the other quit. Um, so we had to find a new front end uh, with Kyle Daring and Robbie Gordon in 15. Quite a talented team. And when we found success right away, we got to that 2015 final and had full control of the game. We were two up with playing the ninth end. And Skipper, myself, completely fell asleep. Um, <laughs> and the biggest meltdown I've ever had in curling. Gave up a steal of two and nine, steal and 10. That was kind of like a turning point for that team. I would say complacency kind of set in personally in 14 and 15. It's kind of that mindset of when the juniors were invincible, right? Like we're going to blow everybody out of the water. And, and little did we know, Braden Calvert was one of the top junior teams in the world at the time. And lucky enough to have him in our province. And, you know, we lost that game in 15. And as difficult of a moment that was, I mean, that's when I, I got two years with that last junior team of mine. And that second year, you know, after losing that, I think we kind of turned a new page on what working really hard at the game was. The amount of effort we put in in year two compared to year one was was night and day. And it showed, I mean, year two with that team, we were quite dominant and we ran through the juniors, the Manitoba juniors, nine and oh, but I, I don't think that happens if we don't get that little bit of a wake up call in 15, that sort of thing happened in the final. I mean, you don't forget about something like that and, and you never want it to happen again. And the amount of work we put in in that last year of juniors was quite incredible for a junior team. And, you know, glad we did it because we, we were able to go out and, and win a junior bronze, uh, you know, to finish off my junior career anyways, the other three had had one year left, but you know, pretty, pretty awesome way to finish it off. There's a lot of talk in the media about, oh, the world's catching up and the world's caught up to Canada and all this stuff. Did you sort of even get a sense of that in 2016? Because like looking back at the world juniors in 2016, I mean, it is a murderer's row. You've got you, you've got Bruce Mowat, Corey Dropkin, Rasmus Rana, Magnus Ramsfield, Yannick Schwaller. Were you starting to already get a sense of like, oh boy, like Canada's in some trouble here? Totally. We, we knew full well. I mean, we had played Corey a ton. We played like a bunch of U.S. men's spiels, um, a couple junior spiels too. So we were very familiar with Corey. There used to be, I think there still is that Ottawa junior spiel they have kind of near Halloween. And Yannick and Bruce would always come over to that. And I remember Bruce steamrolled us in that. I think it was the final that year. Beat us like 7-2 or something like that. And um, just like, holy smokes, like there's there's good guys coming from everywhere. And then sure enough, get to the World Juniors, they're all there. And you, you look at all of them now, like there's five or six teams in that World Juniors that are now ranked inside the, the top 10 in the world. So we, we knew full well, we up up against some heavy hitters at that World Juniors. Um, you saw it right away with, with how good all of those guys are. And I know some of them don't necessarily play anymore, but 
the guys that still are, I mean, they were, they were all in that juniors and now they're at the top of the game today. You said you knew some of those teams and stuff at the time. Did it sort of soften the blow of winning bronze or like, could you be proud of it in that moment? Or was that a tough thing for you? I was still disappointing for sure. I mean, again, that bronze game, I mean, played it twice and super difficult game to play in, but I mean, it's, it feels so rewarding, um, you know, going home with a little bit of hardware there. Um, it's such an important game to win, to make the event feel like a success. I mean, to go out and be third in the world is nothing to hang your hat on, especially when the fields are as good as that. And we went seven and two and, you know, just lost the wrong game in a, in a really tough field. And, and that happens, but, uh, you know, rebounded, came home with some hardware and, you know, a good way to finish it off. Totally. And then, so you, like you said, you moved on to men's, all your guys stayed in juniors and you start out playing second for Steve Laycock. Uh, were you always thinking that you would have to play uh, lower down the lineup in men's or because obviously you, you move up to skipping pretty quickly and we'll get to that in a second. But did you sort of think going into men's, especially not being able to have the three guys come with you that you might have to play lower in the lineup? Or were you thinking like, oh, I'd just kind of rather keep skipping? No. So at my first year of men's, I actually, I played with Alex Forrest, Connor Negevin and Ian McMillan. Um, so I skipped that year. Yes. Right. I beat you that year. Yeah, yeah you did. <laughs> we talked about that a couple of days ago. <laughs> you sure did. So basically after that season was done, got a message from Steve Laycock, who was top five, top 10 in the world at the time, obviously Olympic trials right around the corner. They had said that Colton stepping away and you know, my men's team at the time wasn't currently in the slams, um, wasn't, you know, at the top of the level. And this was just a little bit of a door opening for me to, you know, get up to that top level playing against the best in the world and, you know, a free shot at getting an Olympic trials experience, which is pretty few and far hard to come by. Curler maybe has four or five cracks in that in a career if you stick with this, this sport for that long. So um, that, that was an opportunity for me. I couldn't pass up regardless of the position I knew you know like give this second thing a go like try as hard as I can at it deep down what I love about the game is is the skip position um and everything that comes with it but um you know an opportunity to learn from one of the top 10 teams in the world at the time to get that experience of I mean we got to play in a briar too so I I mean it was a great experience like I said I was probably the worst second in the world (laughs) just because the the mentality of it is so different and like the shots are almost more precise like when you're freezing rocks on top eight top 12 top four like line needs to be great weight needs to be great whereas a skip I mean a lot of the time you're just drawn drawn to the forefoot and line doesn't really matter so I mean the, the amount of freezes I bounced off Stevie would call a top eight freeze. I'd throw T line, hit a quarter rock, spill open like every time. <laughs> it, it was just, it was a mentality thing that I just couldn't get to. Obviously my, my sweeping is, is up there with my top eight freeze ability. <laughs> so you heard it here first folks, Matt Dunstone has officially said playing second is harder than skipping. So you end up moving up the lineup and, and by the time I believe the trials roll around, you're throwing last. And uh, what did that conversation look like do you was it partly that you weren't very good at second or because to me you know you're a young guy you're 20 21 years old you got Steve Laycock like you said veteran world junior champ been to a bunch of briars what did that kind of conversation look like because to me I feel like that's got to be a probably a pretty interesting moment for him to cede the reins to the young guy yeah it was uh it happened just after the uh, Penticton spiel in November um so that was our last event before the trials I believe 
we had just lost a tiebreaker to Sean Geel, I think. And um, again, it probably has more to do with maybe I'm, I've missed my way to the skip position. That might've been what it was because <laughs> I was just murdering them. Kirk, Kirk and Steve were throwing at nothing for the first half of the season. So basically after that event, a couple of days rolled by and, and then Steve sent me a message just saying, give him a call. And he kind of explained what he was thinking and just sort of where everybody's abilities and sort of strengths are in our current lineup aren't necessarily working per se. Um, it was a nice way of saying you're not doing your job. So Steve brought it up and, and proposed it to me. I didn't really know what to think at the time because it was just so shocking to me. Didn't expect it whatsoever. So we, we talked through that and then, you know, talked to the team about it and kind of worked our way to that and ended up throwing, throwing last rock uh, for the first time with that team at the trials. No big deal. You, I'm sure you weren't nervous about that at all. Oh my God. I'll never forget it. First rock of the trials, we were playing Kevin Cooey. It was just an outturn hit just off the line. Nothing in play. We were just blank in the end. And I was literally sitting in the hack shaking, like by far the most nervous rock I've ever thrown. <laughs> Obviously settled in uh, after that, but I'll never forget that because that was the most nervous I'd ever felt in curling at any capacity. An, op- an open hit in the first game. <laughs> <laughs> just freaking. Yeah. I mean, I, I could see that for sure. It's, it can't be easy, especially. Yeah. Like when you've got the veterans below you, you don't want to let them down either. No, totally. I mean, they busted their butts to to be one of the top teams in the world, best team in Saskatchewan for, you know, I think it was an eight, nine, 10 year stretch, yep. something around that. And I mean, this was, this was kind of their moment and I'm kind of the new guy just hopping on the backs of all their hard work, reaping the benefits of it really. And, you know, you know, throwing the last rock. You want to put your best foot forward and give these guys who have given everything they got to get to that point. So definitely felt, you know, a lot of pressure in that moment, you know, very thankful for that opportunity. I mean, the growth I had in that season, super invaluable. I mean, just to to be around three complete professionals who, you know, have been there, done that with everything to do with the game, uh, really showed me the ropes and, you know, to give me that opportunity and trust me with that opportunity to throw the last rock in the trials is something I'll never forget. And, you know, we, we did have some success later on in the year to go into my first briar and their hundredth briars, you know, pretty, pretty cool way to finish off the one season I had with them uh, being team Saskatchewan at the briar. Totally. Okay. We've reached the midpoint of the episode. This is where I bring out a segment I like to call dirty laundry, where I dig up some, uh, some dirt about you and uh, we discuss it. I will say this dirt is not too controversial, so don't worry. You're, you're you're safe here with me. This was interesting to me because on my weekly comedy podcast, Blocked Party, we recently had this discussion. So I'm curious to hear about your side of it. But I have heard that you fully believe if you're on a flight and the pilot becomes incapacitated, you could land the plane. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I have this strange thing with flying. I do it a ton, like just being an import the last five years, like I'm minimum 65 to 70 flights plus a season. It scares the shit out of me. (laughs) Why this hunk of metal can be 38,000 feet in the air and, and hum along like it does will never make any sense to me. I'm obsessed with Mayday. And (laughs) I've heard this as well. Yeah. (laughs) And what is that? Is that like a show about plane crashes or something? Exactly what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> so I do a ton of research on flying and how planes work and that sort of thing. Just from watching Mayday, I know every scenario that's possible with a plane. <laughs> <laughs> so I have this false sense of belief that I could be a pilot if need be, because I've I've learned from all these pilots and, you know, 
<laughs> past mistakes and failures. But it doesn't concern you that you've never actually flown a plane before. Doesn't concern... No. <laughs> doesn't, it, don't, don't you just turn the engines off and glide into a body of water? Is that how it works? That's what Sully taught us, if nothing else. So. Yeah, so something like that. So, I mean, I, I hope to goodness that that scenario never happens. But if it does, you'll be putting your hand up to get into the cockpit. I'll be first in line. I feel awfully ready for the challenge. <laughs> I So we talked about it on Block Party because there was a survey done where people asked, you know, they asked people if if this happened and you had to take over the plane, do you think with like guidance in your ears from air traffic control, you could land the plane? And so then I talked to a pilot friend of mine and he was like, oh, air traffic control is not going to help you. You're like, he's like, they just don't know enough about flying planes. He's like, but if you get a pilot on the line, they might be able to help you just so you know. I always get a sense of relief that because sometimes they fly pilots around, right? So there's pilots that sit in economy with you back there. So I, when I walk down the aisle and see a pilot sitting there, I go, booyah. <laughs> Any, <laughs> anything that goes wrong with this plane, we got the right guy for the job. <laughs> I just, I, I won't have to step up. I would like the pilots go into the cockpit. You're like, okay, you got it. You got, all right, I'll sit down. I'll be your first officer, pal. No worries. <laughs> Yeah, I got you. But it's it's, a, it's amazing the relief I feel when I walk onto a plane and I see pilots sitting there. So it hasn't gotten any easier. Your fear of flying has not really eased despite taking all of these flights. When I don't fly for a while, then I get nervous. But like when we're playing events back to back and that sort of thing, and we're taking 10, 12 flights in you know, the span of a couple weeks or whatever it might be, then I feel good. Then I feel invincible. But it refreshes if it's been a few months. September is always difficult because the summer not flying nearly as much. Beginning of the season again, it's like, God damn it, I love curling, but I hate this flying thing. <laughs> Especially flying out of Kamloops. It's minimum four flights every trip you take. You got to take the puddle jumper over to Calgary or Vancouver all the time. So you'd think I'd come around by now, but no. I heard a great story. Uh, about in your junior days, you know, you're talking about your second year in juniors, you guys were really ramping up, you, you know, you're disappointed, you wanted to win in 2016. So I heard you're on a diet plan, you're filling out these dietitian forms. And there was a, apparently a moment where you ordered what, what, what was described to me as one of the largest A&W orders of all time while filling out the dietary forms. Can you walk me through this story? Yeah, I think we had just lost the I think it was after we lost the Ottawa final to Bruce. We were working with people through Curl Manitoba, Sport Manitoba, whatever it was, filling out these forms and what our normal, you know, daily diet looks like and that sort of thing. And and, <laughs> and the boys had just lost the final. Like, ah, oh, we're hungry. And we were getting emails like, hey, your forms are late. Like, let's get them in. Typical junior boys team, eh? Just like, sure, yeah. not not a care in the world. You know, these these forms will get there when they get there. And they're like, where where is this? So we're sitting in a hotel room, just crushing teen burgers, like onion rings, <laughs> fries, you name, like just everything under the sun was was being crushed. <laughs> Filling out these diet forms. What what's your uh, what's your daily uh, uh, diet look like? Oh yeah, you know, wake up in the morning, black coffee, berries, yogurt, <laughs> a little bit of spinach, you know, just crushing teen burgers. <laughs>
Okay, let's get back to serious business. You know, you reunited with Colton Lott this year. Was that something that was kind of always in your plans? You know, you guys obviously played juniors together and then took basically an entire quad apart. You know, were you guys always kind of talking about how you'd like to end up back together or was it just more of a circumstance thing? Uh, you know, it was more of a circumstance thing. Um, I would say never talked about it with him kind of what, during my time in Saskatchewan. Obviously, it, it stuck around, played against him, talked to him at the rinks and, and that sort of thing. And, and you just saw the kind of player he was becoming um, through his doubles. And, you know, even in his men's career, when he was skipped um, his team to provincial final the last year, I guess it would have been. I've always known he's an absolute player. Back in our junior days, like he was the best shot maker in the world, bar none every shot in the book and and obviously having skipped him like that's not something you forget about so I mean sort of when this opportunity came up and and he was obviously available like it, it was a no-brainer to me um I know the curling world wasn't wasn't as familiar with him but you know having played four years with him I, I knew exactly what he was all about and he, he quickly became one of if not the best second in the world this year and, and it's a brand new position for him he hasn't missed a beat uh he's for for those who still don't know him, and I'm shocked if you don't, <laughs> he's he's an absolute beast. Yeah, I mean, incredible at the Briar this year. I think I said in my Substack back in the beginning of the year that I thought by the end of this quad he would be one of the best seconds, and I think I agree with you. I he's already there. You know, he he looked incredible at the Briar, and it seems like you guys also you, there there feels like a good you know chemistry piece there too between the two of you. Can you talk about that a little bit? How well you guys work together? Yeah, totally. I mean, there, there's just such a huge mutual respect. I mean, this goes for the the entire team. Like, there's no personalities that kind of talk over each other. Um, everybody gets a chance to be heard. And me and Colton have always just had that connection right from the get-go when, when we first started playing together. Again, it, it just comes down to the respect that we have for one another. And and that chemistry was there from the get-go, carried over into this year. Having him aboard feels like I played with him, you know, my, my whole life. And it's always going to feel that way with Colton. Nice. And so wait, you mean to tell me that a team with BJ, Colton and Ryan on it, there's lots of space for people to be heard? Wait, wait a minute. <laughs> there, there, is, there is opportunity for, uh, for talking to be done. <laughs> I'm usually the one that rambles on about nothing. Is I, I, like, I like to listen to myself talk uh, for the most part. You and me both, baby. <laughs> okay, now let's talk about the Briar this year. And you talk about people not knowing Colton. And I think in some cases, that's true of you too. I mean, obviously people know you, but this year felt like you guys were in a different sort of spotlight. I mean, obviously you make the final, that's that's going to put a certain spotlight on you. But it just felt like the whole event, you guys go undefeated through the round robin. And you know, it seemed like a lot of people were really paying attention. And I think one thing that stuck out to people, obviously we talked about it earlier, is the emotion you play the game with and I know that really until Brad Jacobs and his team in sort of 2013-14 that whole run it was sort of thought as like emotions are a bad thing in curling it's all about being the you know the stoic warrior out there and like what work have you done over the years maybe or have you done any work to kind of channel those emotions like how do you think that it helps your play to kind of yeah like you said be a part of the Matt Dunstone experience the big thing is my breath and heart rate and awareness of that would be the two things. Um, so the amount of breathing exercises I do, heart rate regulation, not necessarily trying to get heart rate and breathing into a certain spot, because when you get into those nervous moments, like your body's going to do what it's going to do. Right. And that's where the awareness part comes in. So just being aware of those specific moments and when they come and then being able to regulate it 
not even regulated per se, but again, just being aware of it um, just allows you to, you know, deal, you know, that much better. Uh, the, the biggest thing for me, I mean, when I'm not calling shots, barking at the boys, whatever it might be, I'm thinking about my breath and where my heart rate's at. Were you inspired by Jacobs at all? Because I mean, that was around when you were coming up in juniors, you won in 2013. So did he, did that team kind of inspire you to maybe show a little bit more of yourself that way? Totally. That absolutely. Him and Jeff would be my two biggest curling idols for sure. You know, I got a firsthand look at the 2013 trials in Winnipeg when I was living there. I was there all week, got to see Brad and them, you know, steamroll the field and play the way they did with the emotion that they did. And that was kind of the moment for me, that trials, just watching them was like, this curling thing is for me. I want to do this. I want to pursue this as, as crazy as it is. You know, I just, <laughs> I want to go down this road and, you know, see what we can make happen. And definitely a team I looked up to glad they're not a team anymore because they <laughs> steamrolled me every time we played. I think I'm like three and 13 against them in my life. <laughs> definitely a team, you know, maybe not mod. Uh, sure. Modeled, modeled myself after and kind of wanted to be like that emotion part, you know, the, the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs you feel of a game. That's, that's why I love the sport. That's, that's why I love competing and being able to, to potentially be a part of those moments is what keeps me coming back. And people feel that too, right? I think that's what people are going to love about you if they don't already, right? Is you let everybody know exactly where you're at at all times. And, it, and I think it's very compelling to watch. And you brought up Adam Kingsbury. Describe your relationship with him to me. Yeah, we're best friends. That's kind of the cool part is we go so beyond curling. We talk nearly every day, play online video games with each other all the time. NHL and Formula One in particular. I got a, a big race wheel um, that he forced me to get. So nice. we're racing nice. all the time. So that's that's the part that's special to me in our relationship is it goes just so far beyond the, the curling. And we're going to be lifelong friends uh, because of it, for sure. The whole outlook on the game, the way he's able to fast track a team's chemistry and the culture he builds is very special. And of course, if you're you're not a part of it, you don't necessarily know what he's able to do. Even in this one year, that what he's been able to do with our team and where he's been able to, to get us as a team culture-wise, pretty incredible. It's a huge reason why we're, we're as good as we are right now. And what went into that decision? Because I think, you know, a lot of people don't know this about Kevin Cooey necessarily, but this is a model that he's had as well, where his sports psychologist, John Dunn, has been his coach forever and is not really a curling guy per se, not a technical coach. What went into your sort of original decision? You know, you've been working with Adam for a while. What went into that decision to kind of say, you know what, maybe we don't need a sort of veteran curler or a, or a more technical coach. We want to have a someone with more of a psychology background as our coach what went into that decision originally the difference between number one and 15 in the world like from a talent standpoint everybody's so similar from a shot making standpoint sweeping everything to do with on the ice strategy everybody's so similar right so it's that one two three shots a game where do we sort of find that edge and that's certainly my belief is you know you find that with team chemistry and culture and being able to be resilient. And that to me is where you kind of find that extra edge. That's what I love about Adam. The the teams I've had usually have a pretty good grasp on how we want to throw the stone, how we want to call a game tactically, all that sort of thing. It's just all about finding that different piece that might put you over the edge. 
I mean, it's clear that it's working. I, I think one of the memorable shots of the Briar for me was you with your arm around him in the uh, semifinal. You know, you just couldn't believe it. I mean, it was such an awesome, awesome run. And, and, and yeah, I think people could see that friendship on the screen. And, and it was it was wonderful to see. And no need to sugarcoat it. You lost. That sucks. How have you been trying to recover from that? Because I think a lot of people would say, well, hey, man, look, what a run. First Briar final you guys, you know, captured the imagination of Canada. You played great. You you kept yourself in it even when you got down three. But, you know, I know you and you and I talked a little bit after the loss. I got the sense that none of that is means anything to you. You know, how, how have you gone about sort of recovering from what is arguably the biggest loss of your career? The four games we finished off with, like we went botcher gushu, botcher gushu. Like I said to the guys, like that was the toughest four stretch of games ever been a part of like every game was so emotional heavyweight punches being thrown back and forth like usually in a couple game stretch like you get one where you're three down coming home or two up with like one's kind of like a ho-hum kind of just going through the motions near near the back end of it but all four of those games were just so emotionally draining especially the last two giving up the steal stealing to win and then playing the final all in a 24 hour ish stretch body completely shut down the following week of the briar i was sick for five or six days after i was on bed rest for a bit (laughs) (laughs) it's amazing the emotion the stress actually does to to one person and i mean the loss is one thing um i I think the saddest part of everything is just sort of getting back to reality back in the routine because you you live in some big fantasy land for two weeks, you know, at the Briar, biggest Canadian event there is, you know, all these fans cheering you on, everything that comes with it. And, you know, you, you get back home and, you know, suddenly it's, you're in a quiet house and you, you got to try and pick up some work and do that sort of thing. Reality hits you like a ton of bricks, right? I always find after those events that the saddest part of, of it all is just that it's done, you know, laughs in the hotel room and going out and compete and getting to feel all those emotions that, we're pretty fortunate to feel as athletes, the anxious moments and the stress, all that sort of stuff. I mean, in the moment, it doesn't feel phenomenal, but I mean, how lucky are we to actually be able to feel that sort of thing? Because that's that's something that not a lot of people get to feel all the time. And the sad part is that it's over. I mean, what a love to just keep on going and playing. Yeah, I mean, at least you'll have, you know, presumably you'll have some more shots at it. I mean, some of us in this conversation never got to feel that. So, uh, you know, <laughs> you, it's a good it's a good outlook. I, I, I like it. Last one before we get to the trivia, a big event for you coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, the uh, SGI Canada Best of the West, uh, the event that you've been running now. This is the second year uh, coming up in Saskatoon with uh, with Rylan Clyder and Dustin Mickish. And so for people who are listening who don't know, it's a U30 event uh, every province from Manitoba West. West to BC uh, has teams participating this year. I believe you have a few wild card teams as well, just to get some more U thirties in the mix. And I know, you know, as an under 30 player yourself, you kind of started this tournament thinking that there isn't really necessarily a lot of things being done to support the younger players uh, in Canada right now coming out of juniors and that kind of thing. Can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, maybe where you think, the game needs to head uh, with regard to U30 players in particular, because I think, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot. Um, You know, we're losing, we're losing a lot of really good junior players. Yeah. I mean, it seems like after juniors, I mean, and a lot of teams kind of one or two make it. And usually they're on the ones that, you know, had success at juniors. Um, And then after that, a lot of them go missing. You know, I I think that travelers needs to be taken, you know, a, a little bit more, not seriously per se, but just like, as, as a great outlet for people who don't necessarily 
are, are going to make this smart decision and not put in, you know, all the time in the world and, you know, that sort of thing. And, and to be able to go and compete at national championships and like they got to play in West Edmonton Mall this year. I mean, that's phenomenal. Like I would love to do something like that. Um, So just finding ways to, you know, hang on to these people to, to, to keep them curling, whether it be competitively, recreationally, whatever it might be, you know, during COVID when everybody had too much time to think, obviously did some thinking and, you know, just did some digging on stats. And, you know, I saw the average age of the Briar and the Scotties was in and around 32 to 34, 35 years of age, which is 12 to 15 years after you graduate out of juniors. Right. And, you know, that to me is a big reason why we lose a bunch of the young people just because the, the grind is so big and it takes so long to get to that level. And and by no means should it be easy to get there. That's not what a national event is is meant for. Not everybody should get in. So we, we got to continue to find stuff to make people want to stick with it. And, you know, to, to sort of fast track that and the idea with the best of the West was just getting people back in their provincial jackets. Because, I mean, if you're waiting till you're 35 years old to, to play in your first Briar or Scotties and you haven't put on a provincial jacket maybe ever, like it's a little bit intimidating and you don't necessarily know when you're going to get back to it. And kind of at that point, if it might be you're one and only, you want to go there and, and have a good chance to win it. Right. So finding ways for, for these teams to be able to play in their provincial jackets in front of TV fans on ice, that's sort of, like just trying to give them sort of that sort of experience, um, I guess is kind of the, the idea behind this event and still a lot of work to be done, but it needs, it needs to be more than just events alone. There needs to be, little bit of a process and an avenue, um, some direction given. And, and and this needs to start at 14, 15, 16 years old. Um, you, you don't want to necessarily be starting this at 23, 24, 25, when, you know, people are busy with university and arguably one of the more, more busier times of one's life, kind of starting that process at a, at a much earlier age and just making everybody aware of, you know, sort of what avenues there are sort of after the juniors. Okay. Let's get on to extremely difficult own career trivia. Okay, here we go. Question number one. In the 2013 Canadian Juniors, you opened the tournament by goose-egging the Northwest Territories. How many points did you score? Oh, 11? 12 bagel. Real close. Oh, for one. That's okay. You still got a chance here. In the 2016 World Juniors, you faced off against Turkish skip Urchan Karagas. Spell either his first or last name. You can choose. I'm going last name. Uh, K-A-R-A-C-U-Z. No. No, I launched it. (laughs) (laughs) You started out hot, uh, but no, it's uh, K-A-R-A-G-O-Z. I wouldn't wouldn't have got that. Okay, here we go. Question number three. At your first Briar in 2018, you went two and two against the eventual four playoff teams. You have the option to name either both of the teams you beat or both of the teams you lost to. Whoa. I'm try- I can't. I can't remember who the fourth team was. <laughs> well, I can't tell you that. God, no, I know. Uh, give me a moment. Holy smokes. I know Epping, Botcher, and Gushu. We lost to Gushu and Epic. That's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Who was the fourth team? Was it Jacobs? It was Jacobs, yeah. You beat Botcher and you beat Jacobs, but you lost to Gushu and Epic. Couldn't remember if it was Jacobs in the fourth. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you got it. Okay, so you're, you got one. You're on the board with one. Okay, here we go. In the third leg of the 2018-19 Curling World Cup in Jonshiping, Sweden, 
you won and only had one loss that entire event in a shootout. Which skip did you lose to? Ross Patterson. That's right, Ross Patterson, yeah. I said which skip and not which country. I was hoping that maybe, you know, you'd forget that Ross skipped there for a minute. Now, speaking of the Curling World Cup, you still waiting for that check or what? No, we got that money. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I, I was I was good after the Sweden World Cup. After the finale in China, it was a little dicey. I heard it was a little bit tougher to get paid after that one. Yeah, we we, we did end up getting paid, but we weren't sure if it was actually going to come enough. <laughs> you had to send some people over. All right, now you've got a chance to tie the record, a three out of five here. Uh, in the last Saskatchewan Provincial that you won, which was in 2020, you had to take the long way through the seaside. Who did you beat in the 3-4 game? Sean Meacham. No, you beat Sean Meacham in the C-final. You beat Jason Jacobson in the 3-4. Oh, for shit's sakes. (laughs) I I gotta take a little bit more time. You're right. I remember the game perfectly. It was on sheet A. We took a three in the first end. (laughs) And you were so... I wish people could see you because you were so confident. It was like when Meacham came to you, it was like the brightest light bulb ever went off in your head. Oh, man, I thought that was a one-foot putt uphill. (laughs) Missed it, right? God. Two out of five, not a bad score. Respectable score, Matt. We do finish off the show with a segment we call The Extra End, and this is a question that is given to you from our previous guest on the show, so I'm not responsible for this question. This is from our previous guest, Jill Officer. If you could do one thing to make curling more appealing shortening practice times of 10 end games. I like 10 end games for championships. I I love it. I I think it's perfect for championships, but the game itself, like it takes five hours when it's all said and done, like, especially with how good the ice is. I mean, it doesn't take all that time to get the ice up to snuff. So, I mean, I I like kind of the seven minute practice up and back the the extra three minutes there could go without every, every minute counts when you're playing 10 end games with everything else that comes with it. And, Another thing would be playing X number of ends when you're not the TV game. Like if you're down 9-1 playing the fifth end, oh, we got to go to eight. Like get rid of that. It's not good for anybody. It's it's not enjoyable for the fans, not enjoyable for the player. I understand it if you're on TV and it makes sense, but likely they've moved you moved games anyways. But let's let's get the hell out of Dodge here and on to the next. Thank you so much, Matt, for being here. Before we go, uh, a chance to plug your sponsors. Yeah, big big shout out to our title sponsor, Coyote Tractor and Coyote Tractor Canada. Obviously, we're, we're rocking the, the bright orange jerseys because of them. And I mean, they, they make the world go round for us. Um, Hardline Curling, uh, Jasmine Harden Law Office and Inlet and Autoline. Huge thanks to them. I mean, they're they're the biggest reason we can go out and do what we do and, you know, travel the world and put all the effort and time in uh, that we need to, to to try and make it to the top. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Matt. So there you have it, Matt Dunstone, one of my favorite guys to talk to, as I said, off the top. Just great for the sport. Love that he's, you know, when you get him talking about curling, it's all business. But when you get him talking about anything else, huge smile on his face. We're talking about A&W. We're talking about landing planes. Awesome guy. Great to talk to. And I also want to say, I tried to trap him a little bit at the beginning of the episode by asking him about if he cries at movies, you know, and... um Funny enough, as we were recording this episode, another curler 
from BC. I won't say who, but was he was renovating Matt's bathroom at the time that Matt and I were recording this episode. So he could hear everything Matt was saying. And he sent me a text after the interview. And he said that at his wedding, Matt was the MC. Well, their wedding photographer told them that they had never seen an MC cry so much at a wedding in all of their time <laughs> photographing weddings. So Matt comes by those emotions, honestly. You know, he, it seemed like he tried to skate by it on the movie question, but it's a great thing, but I thought that story was very funny. He texted me, don't let Matt off the hook. Make sure you bring that up. So there you have it. And uh, we'll get now into our question of the week. This week, I thought it would be fun to bring in two people associated with Matt, two people that Matt is very close with to answer our question of the week. I brought in Aaron Pincott, his real-life partner, third for Team Corinne Brown, and Kyle Deering, who played all those junior years with Matt, and they've been very good friends for a long time to answer our question of the week. In the interview, Matt was talking about how it wasn't just the the pain of losing the Briar final that got to him, but it was also just how much it sucked to get home. You know, any curler can feel that. Even when you're not in the Briar or in the Scotties or the Worlds, not even when it's a huge tournament, even when you're away for, you know, just a, a bond spiel, you know, anytime you're on the road, you truly feel like that's all that's going on. It's just like eat, sleep, curl. You're not paying attention to anything that's going on in the real world. And then when you get home, it's just like back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity, as Eminem would say. But it feels like the world just drops out and you're right back in it. And so I thought I would ask Aaron and Kyle about what they hate most. What's the one chore or thing that you hate doing the most when you get back from a curling weekend. Here's Aaron. This is Aaron Pincott, and I would have to say my least favorite thing to come home to after being away for curling is an empty fridge. We're away so much in the fall and winter that it's hard to keep a lot of uh, fresh groceries on hand. When I get home from an event, it's usually a struggle to to scrounge together a meal, so I'm I'm surviving on peanut butter toast and, and popcorn and things like that until I can get my act together and and go to the grocery store. I agree with Aaron. I think this would be top of my list. When you get back into real life and then you got to go grocery shopping, there's nothing in your fridge. You don't really want takeout when you get home because you've been eating out the whole curling weekend, but then you also don't really want to cook and you also don't have anything in the house. Horrible feeling. Uh, Now we're going to hear from Kyle Deering. Uh, plays for Team Sturme out of Alberta, but of course played for Manitoba for a number of years. And uh, there's also a particular household task that he doesn't like doing. I would say the thing I hate coming home from a curling event now that I'm an import would be unloading my suitcase and doing the wash for everything after every event. It's something I hate doing. Sometimes my suitcase will sit there for three or four days before I have time to tend to it. So that's probably my least favorite thing about uh, finishing a curling event. And I got to say, Kyle's answer probably second on my list. The one thing about laundry, though, that's a little different from grocery shopping is at least you can put it off. And I mean, Kyle even admits that in the clip. You know, sometimes you go three, four days without doing the laundry. The worst is when you got to curl two weekends in a row or even three weekends in a row if you're a true sicko, because then it's like you got to get the laundry done quickly. And if you don't get the laundry done, then you're wearing those underwear and socks you don't really like to wear. They're not that comfortable, but you had no choice because you were lazy and you didn't do the laundry. I'm with you, Kyle. 
I hate it as well. Thank you uh, to Aaron and Kyle, and thank you to Matt for this interview. Thank you to you for listening. Always such a pleasure here on Way Inside. I want to thank producer Mike Rogerson, Amal, Kevin, Warren, Jim, Griffin, the whole crew at Sportsnet. Uh, I'm John. You can follow me on Twitter at Cullen on Curling. You can also subscribe to my curling newsletter. It's cullenoncurling.substack.com. I'm putting out newsletters every week or two. It's an amalgamation of all the things I'm thinking about curling at any given time. It's free to subscribe, so you can go check that out. And uh, you can check this show out again in two weeks. We're out every second Thursday here on the Inside Curling feed. Thank you again for listening. Thanks for being a curling fan. You're the best. And remember, if you're going to be inside, be way inside. Welcome.